Thank you for joining me for the next talk of the series that we have titled Liturgy Gathering Around the Practice of Non-Duality. That's the title of the series. Today's episode is Scripture. But when it comes to the series, we could have also titled it Liturgy Coming Together to Practice Oneness. Perhaps another name could have been Church Working Together to Unpack the Oneness that we all share in Christ. Any of those names could have worked. They all, they all get at the same thing. To recap where this intellectual and mystical journey has taken us so far, if you will remember, in the first episode, I offered up some introductory thoughts to you and gave some basic definitions for terms like non-duality, liturgy. And I also shared my goal for this project, to persuade the so far unpersuaded of the importance of practicing one's spirituality in community with other people. Where the Holy Spirit blows, John Zazulis writes, she does not create good individual Christians or mystics, but community. Or as St. Paul said in one of our readings from a few weeks ago, whenever we gather together, that which is lacking in our faith is restored. Other people who practice the liturgy with us patch over the holes in our faith, which is why we need each other. We, we complete each other. We make each other whole, right? I also wanted to offer this series up to help people find points of contact between the spirituality they practice and the historic Christian liturgy as it is embodied in the Episcopal Church. And if you'll remember in the second talk, <clears throat> we took a sort of panoramic view of the Eucharist, what some traditions call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Mass. And we talked about how gratitude is one of the main reasons why we do what we do together on Sunday mornings. Receiving the Eucharist is a practice of gratefulness. And we talked about how gratefulness roots us in the present moment, perhaps more than any other practice, because it overcomes all duality between us and this thing that we call the present moment. It helps us to live in the now, in other words. Then, if you will recall, in the last talk, we explored the interconnected themes of sacred space and procession, or the movement that happens within that sacred space. We talked about how traditional sanctuaries are designed to represent both heaven and earth simultaneously, and how the altar party overcomes this duality between heaven and earth through their movement throughout the space. And then we ended with some reflections on the crucifix, or the cross that the crucifer carries, and the candles that the torchbearers carry. We reflected on how the illuminated cross is the gateway into the deepest mystical insight revealing to us that there is no duality between our suffering and God's, our pain and God's pain, our tears and God's tears. Through the cross, God participates in our suffering. Now this week, as I mentioned, we are venturing into what is probably the most familiar terrain of the Episcopal liturgy to non-Episcopalians, Bible or scripture reading. All flavors of Christianity not only implement the reading of Scripture into their services, but most place a very heavy emphasis upon it. For some traditions, the reading of the Bible is basically the main thing, the main event. In our tradition, the main thing is the Eucharist. But the Eucharist would not be what it is without the practice of reading, and more importantly, of hearing Scripture. The two things, Eucharist and Scripture, go hand in hand for us. For Scripture flows into Eucharist. Mystically and literally, chronologically, <laughs> in the liturgy. More specifically, Scripture is chiefly designed, in this priest's opinion at least, to train the mind for the Eucharist. That's the main thing of what it's all about. Meditating on scriptural rhythms and narratives it gives us the eyes to see the Eucharist for what it really is, the body and blood of Jesus to us. <clears throat> yes, I know some of you naysayers out there, you would want to push back against <laughs> that last line of thought uh, and say something like this. Well, clearly, 
That was not the point of Scripture for the Old Testament people. They weren't looking for the Eucharist, for the eyes to see the body and blood of Jesus. They didn't read or listen to the Scriptures with this mindset because Christ was not around yet, nor was the Eucharist. Furthermore, they were not Christians. (laughs) And it's a fair point, right? But I would argue, as others do, others who are far more qualified than I am, uh, I would argue that the Hebrew temple mysticism, ancient Hebrew temple mysticism, closely resembles our liturgical mysticism. Why? Because the roots of our liturgical mysticism are actually found in ancient Hebrew temple mysticism. I am persuaded that the Christian Eucharistic liturgy finds its origins in that ancient Hebrew way of temple mysticism, and that the Christian altar is actually a continuation of the Holy of Holies, and that we Christians have adopted the underlying mysticism of the Hebrew sanctuary. Uh, This is not to say, hear me out here, this is not to say that God has replaced the Hebrew faith with Christianity, as many Christian fundamentalists have argued. Rather, it's to say that Christianity cannot be understood, like at all, apart from its ancient Hebrew roots. Even the New Testament was written by 99% or 100%, there's some argument on this, (laughs) it was written by Hebrew people. Right? If we don't understand its Hebrew roots, we won't even understand the New Testament. Back to the point. The ancient Hebrew person listening to the scriptures being read at Solomon's temple, and the modern person sitting in the pews listening to the scripture being read at church, they are essentially seeking the same thing if they are approaching the scriptures from a mystical mindset. The ancient Hebrew person was listening to the scriptures, seeking to somehow touch upon the mysterious reality of the Holy of Holies. Well, that's what we Episcopalians are seeking to do as well, or should be seeking to do, as we hear the scriptures being read to us. Now, circling back to my main point now, if what I'm saying is true, that Eucharist and scripture go hand in hand, then it would also mean that we cannot really understand Scripture if we are never engaging the Eucharist, partaking of it, receiving it. If Scripture is designed to give us sacramental eyes, if it was written in such a way where its aim is to help us to see through a Eucharistic lens, to touch the mystery of the Holy of Holies, the center of reality, the fullness of heaven, as we talked about in the last episode, then to read the Bible with any other motive or frame of reference will only miss the point. More on this in a moment. Again, the reading of and the hearing of Scripture is probably the most recognizable of all of the churchy practices out there. Even in the case of someone who has seldomly ever stepped foot inside of a church, they probably have experienced Scripture reading at a wedding or a funeral at some point, right? Again, the reading of Scripture is perhaps the most recognizable feature of Christian worship, generally speaking. But even though this is the case, I am of the opinion that even though it is so uh, recognizable, it's still probably the most misunderstood part of the entire liturgy. So even though it's the most familiar, uh, it's, it's the most misunderstood aspect of the liturgy. Because even though we hear the Bible being read on Sunday mornings, oftentimes we aren't, perhaps even most of the time now, the way that people think, we aren't hearing it from the right state of mind, from the right frame of reference. In a nutshell, we spend more time trying to analyze the scriptures than we do trying to experience the divine in and through them. We study them as if they were something that's purely exterior to ourselves. 
And because of this, we end up cramming them and ourselves into a dualistic frame of reference. One of the wisest quotes that I have ever come across in my life is a quote by G.K. Chesterton. I'm not a huge fan of Chesterton's like a lot of other folks are, but I'm a huge fan of this quote. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens, he said. It is the logician, logician, like logic, (laughs) not magician, (laughs) uh, but logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. The same is true of the Bible. As long as we are trying to play the part of the logician, trying to cram the Bible into our heads and make sense of it, to systematize it, we will never comprehend it. And it is our head that will split. Our psyches will become fragmented. It's probably more accurate to say that they will remain fragmented. In other words, as long as we try to cram the scriptures into our heads, we will remain in a state of dualistic consciousness. Analyzing the Bible is not the practice that leads one to non-duality. Being able to proof text Bible quotes, right? That's not the practice that leads someone to union with oneself or with others or with the divine. Studying the Bible like you would a textbook in high school, it will only lead you to frustration. The moment you think you have it pegged (laughs) and systematized, you will stumble across some passage within it that completely contradicts and debunks your whole neat and tidy system. (laughs) It will just blow it apart, right? One of the things that's so beautiful about the Episcopal tradition is that we have managed to steer clear, for the most part, of the whole inerrancy, infallibility of scripture debate that's being raged in so many circles these days. There are some flavors of Christianity out there that believe that the Bible is inerrant or infallible, free of errors and flaws, because it's the perfect word of God handed down to us by God himself. The problem is that whenever people become indoctrinated into this way of thinking, they tend to become logicians, and their head splits. Let's just pretend for a moment that you are someone who goes to like a fundamentalist church. Not to re-trigger some of you, re-traumatize some of you, but bear with me. Let's pretend you are someone who goes to a fundamentalistic church. One that teaches that the foundation of its whole of the whole Christian faith is the inerrancy, the perfection of the Bible, the perfect word of God, right? So basically, if you don't take the Bible literally, word for word, seeing it as a perfect um, expression of God to you, your whole salvation is in jeopardy. It's that central of a thing for so many churches and so many traditions. So you're going to a church like that. But you decide that you're going to buy into this central tenet of the faith. And yes, you initially find a lot of comfort in it. Out of all of the unreliable things in this world, finally, finally, you found something that is reliable, something that is black and white in a world that is filled with so much gray. So you decide to dive deeper into this perfect thing, this perfect Bible, this inerrant scriptures, right? that has given you so much comfort. You're looking to ground yourself all the more in that assurance and that comfort. So you dive in big time. But after a while, you begin to notice a discrepancy. You start to notice that there's a whole lot of stuff in that Bible of yours that your pastor never even preaches on. Now, most traditions that hold hard and fast to the inerrancy of scripture idea, they often don't follow what we call a lectionary or a schedule of Bible readings that is shared by many denominations. But instead, these churches and traditions and pastors, they handpick the passages they want to preach on. Now, to be fair, a preacher in a lectionary tradition like ours 
can ignore the lectionary readings as well and never address them. But at least the people are still hearing them being read on Sundays. At least they're getting some exposure to them, even if the preacher never touches them. But coming back to your fundamentalist church. <laughs> so you notice this discrepancy and you start to study the parts of the Bible more in depth that your pastor seems to ignore in the pulpit. But then you begin to wonder why. Why? If the entirety of the Bible is the perfect word of God, why is the pastor prioritizing some parts of it over others in his or her sermons? <clears throat> and in your own little personal, private, devotional life, as you're studying the Bible, you even start to stumble upon passages that seem to hint strongly at imperfection. You start to see contradictions and try to make sense of them. But those contradictions still nag at you. The gospel writers, for example, they flat out contradict each other on several occasions if you hold their narratives up to one another side by side. And if you are bold enough to trudge your way through the whole Old Testament, right, going from the first book to the last, you will begin to notice how history is being interpreted differently by different authors. For example, are the vast majority of Israel's kings corrupt, idol-worshipping tyrants who did evil in the eyes of the Lord always, or not? The author of First and Second Kings will give you one perspective, but the author of First and Second Chronicles gives you an entirely different take on the matter. The Chronicles books, they gloss over a whole lot of evil shit, <laughs> to put it that way, that the King's books shine a glaring spotlight on. So which was it? Were Israel's kings completely evil, or were they not that bad? Which perspective is more correct? If the Bible is the perfect word of God, free from all error, why all the confusion? Why can't it seem to recount history accurately? Furthermore, if the Bible really is free from all flaws and errors, why is it so confusing trying to figure out exactly who was there with Jesus whenever he died? Like a pretty crucial moment in this central aspect of this whole faith thing that we believe in, right? The cross, it's central to us. But we don't really know who was really there and who wasn't. For example, was John there or was he not? Was it just the women? And which specific women were there? Every gospel seems to have a different take. Additionally, Luke's Jesus says this to people. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. But compare that with Matthew's Jesus, who says this, Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So, which is it? I mean, do you have to hate all of your loved ones in order to follow Jesus? Or do you just have to love them a little bit less than you love Jesus in order to follow Jesus? There is a big difference here, folks. Now, I can anticipate the pushback on this. <laughs> Some people will argue that the different versions of the same events are being presented by these people who wrote the Bible because they were writing to different audiences. So they nuanced their messages accordingly. Uh, for one, I'm not sure which audience would gravitate more towards the hate language in Luke's Jesus, right? But anyways, that's beside the point. But to me, okay, I get the whole nuancing a message to an audience thing. I have to do it every single week. <laughs> There's a difference, a big difference, between nuancing a message, though, contextualizing it, and flat-out writing contradictory content. There's a difference there. 
So let's come back to your fundamentalist self and your fundamentalist church. On top of all of the struggles that you're starting to feel, a really important realization dawns upon you. You realize that all of these claims about the Bible's perfection and infallibility and inerrancy are never made by the Bible itself. And if you decide to delve deeper and to start, you start to read modern New Testament scholarship, even at a cursory level, you quickly learn that most people believe, regardless of what background or tradition they come from, most scholars believe that Mark was the gospel that was written first, earliest in history. And Matthew and Luke used him as a sort of template for their own projects. Scholars believe this to be the case because so much of Mark is literally found in Matthew and Luke. They are clearly borrowing from Mark's narrative. And when you stumble across this realization, another one dawns on you. <laughs> that Matthew and Luke clearly didn't believe that Mark's gospel was free from flaws and errors. Otherwise, they never would have spent so much time correcting or expanding his version of the story. If it was the perfect word of God, why would they be doing what they are doing? Now, many fundamentalists point to the final verses in the book of Revelation, where it says that if anyone adds anything to the words found in that book, that God would add to the person all of the plagues described within it. It's a comforting thought. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book, erases some words, God will take away that person's share in the kingdom of God. Many fundamentalists believe that this warning not only applies to the book of Revelation, but to the Bible as a whole, since the book of Revelation is found at the very back of the Bible, it's the last book of the Bible, and since this little passage is really close to the end, not only of the book of Revelation, but of the whole Bible. So don't take away or add to words to the Bible is the line of thought. But this notion is ridiculous. Because if what they are saying is true, think about this, then it would mean that both Matthew and Luke will be plagued by God and shut out of the kingdom of heaven because they clearly added to and removed things from Mark's gospel. <laughs> My friends, this whole belief about the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, it only sets people up for failure and tremendous heartache. And many of you listening to me now, you know exactly what I'm describing because I'm describing a part of your journey, right? But once people realize that the Bible does have flaws and errors and contradictions, these folks that come out of these traditions, they feel like the bottom of, their, of the floor of their faith has completely fallen out because so many churches have made it the central tenet of the faith. If you realize that the Bible is not as stable as you once thought it was, as you were once led to believe, you start to feel like everything you've been told is a lie. And people reject the Bible and the Christian faith altogether in a very black and white sort of way because the tradition they have come to reject only presented the faith to them in a very black and white sort of way. If the Bible is not literally true in every single way, then it has to be literally false in every single way. It's terribly sad. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Bible was never meant to be read or accepted in a black and white sort of manner. It was always meant to be engaged with a mystical, in a mystical sort of way, a mystical sort of manner, not in a literal or historical sort of way. It's not a history book. This is not to say there are not some liter literally true stories within it, some historically true stories in it. Historically true stories. There we go. <laughs> uh, it's just that this isn't the point. In the Episcopal tradition, we have avoided 
a lot of these issues around the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture because this has never been a part of our doctrine to begin with. Instead, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture for salvation, to quote the doctrine exactly. The sufficiency of Scripture for salvation. Period. <laughs> so we're not making any claim about the Bible's perfection, or even imperfection for that matter, because it's not the point. Instead, we are pointing to the Bible and we are saying, hey, look, there are things in here that will save you. There are things in here that will enlighten you. There are things in here that will make you whole. There are things in here that will lead you into the reality of the holy of holies, that will lead you to union with the divine. And it doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to do that. Now, I know that a lot of what I'm saying right now, it was a, it's a huge paradigm shift for some people. But I, for one, find it to be an incredibly liberating idea, thing, right? And some people would argue that our Episcopal position diminishes the importance of the Scriptures, but that's completely false. It doesn't at all. For me personally, it just makes the Scriptures more real to me. If the Scriptures are, are imperfect, it appeals to somebody who is imperfect, like me, right? It means that the Scriptures encapsulate the fullness of the human experience, and not just they don't just promote divine perfection to me, right? The Scriptures mirror my human brokenness. And somehow the divine can still speak through that brokenness, right? I don't know anybody who doesn't believe that, who calls themselves a Christian. For God speaks through human imperfection, human error, and contradiction all of the time. So not, why not in the Bible as well, right? Think about it. Many people go to church and listen to a sermon with the hopes that God would somehow speak to them through it. Do they not? And the preacher, everybody acknowledges that the preacher is an imperfect human being. Nobody questions that. Yet, it's still acknowledged that God can speak through them. And furthermore, does the preacher's words have to be infallible or inerrant in order for God to speak through them? Or does God's power to convey truth to the heart and the mind transcend such shallow categories? So rather than trying to cram the Bible into our heads, we should seek to get our heads into the Bible. The Bible can only be understood from within it. And when we get our heads into the Scripture's realities we quickly come to see that whether a certain story is historically literally true or not, it's completely beside the point. I mean, from the earliest times, earliest times, church fathers and mothers, they didn't approach the Bible that so many people do to, in the same way that so many people do today. From the earliest times, people like Origen, highly influential figures and thinkers in the church, they were already making the claim that a literal interpretation of the Bible was the least important way of approaching it. <laughs> this, it was the spiritual interpretation that mattered. In other words, utilizing just one example, whether or not Moses and the Hebrew people literally crossed through the Red Sea is not the point. The most important question about this story isn't, did it really happen? But, what does it mean? It doesn't have to be literally, historically true for it to mean something. For people like Origen and so many others in the early church, people who were listening to the scriptures being read, they needed to move beyond the literal interpretation and into the spiritual one, the mystical one, and discover the countless archetypes of the human experience that are presented to us in these scriptures. And the only way to experience the Bible's fullness is to overcome the duality between us and it that we erect. We have to get ourselves inside of it, in other words. So like good poets, 
let's repent of our logician ways and get our heads into the heavens, shall we? Let's engage a scripture passage in the way that scripture is meant to be engaged. In one of my favorite passages from Luke, we find Jesus telling a parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And a parable basically is a wisdom story. It's not a literally true story. So the story that Jesus is telling here is not historically true. He's not telling a real story about a real Pharisee or a religious leader and a real tax collector who fell in the category of one of the most highly despised people groups in Jesus' time. Well, tax collectors aren't really well-loved these days either, I guess. (laughs) Sometimes there really is nothing new under the sun. But instead, in telling this parable, Jesus is seeking to touch upon the heart of the human experience. In the story, two men go up to the ancient Hebrew temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector guy over here. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of everything I get as a tithe back to you, Lord. That's my Pharisee voice, I guess. (laughs) But listen to this guy. Don't you just hate him? The nerve of this man. Who Who does he think he is, right? But the tax collector, on the other hand, the so-called sinner, he stands off at a distance. He doesn't even feel worthy enough to draw close to the sacred space and pray within it. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beats his breast, a symbolic gesture of penitence and sorrow, and he prays, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, what a wonderful, delightfully humble person he is. He is so much better than that stupid, prideful, bigoted Pharisee, right? Jesus concludes the parable by saying that the sinful tax collector, rather than the prideful religious teacher, went home justified in the eyes of God that day. In other words, the tax collector had stumbled upon the shift in consciousness that is necessary to enter into and to see the kingdom of God. Another way of saying it, one man went to the temple believing himself to be an insider, but his way of seeing the world proved that he was really an outsider, whereas the other man went up to the temple believing that he was an outsider, but his way of seeing the world proved that he was really an insider. Now, if we were to conclude, make the conclusion from this story, uh, that we shouldn't be like that hypocritical, prideful Pharisee, that we know better, right? That the, king, the kingdom of God is not like that, that Jesus' movement of love is not like that. If that's the conclusion that we make, we decide that we don't want to imitate him, we will have utterly missed the entire point of Jesus' parable. Sadly, this is the exact point that most preachers land on whenever I hear the sermon on this text preached, right? Don't be like that Pharisee. (laughs) That's not what Jesus wants. That's why he's telling this parable. It's not. It's not. My friends, as long as we engage this parable, this passage as something exterior to our own human experience, exterior to us, we will fail to have the eyes to see or the ears to hear every time we come across it. We're not meant to read this parable and then decide which parts of the story we should imitate and which parts we should not. This is not an ethical discourse that Jesus is giving here. It's deeper than that. It's a a wisdom story. Jesus is not trying to trigger a different way of living for you. 
He's not trying to get you to fall into a different way of acting by telling this parable. He is trying to shake you awake into a different way of seeing, a different way of being in the world. He is trying to shift your state of consciousness. So it's not about reading the story and then deciding which figure of the story is more worthy of our ethical imitation. No. The point of the story is, well, to put it in language from my generation, the point of the story is to try to figure out just how much Jesus has miyagied us. <laughs> miyagied. Do you remember Mr. Miyagi from the movie Karate Kid? A young man named Daniel comes to Mr. Miyagi, finds out that he's like a karate master, right? And Daniel wants him to teach him karate because he's being bullied. But instead of teaching Daniel karate, Mr. Miyagi has Daniel do a bunch of chores around his house instead. <laughs> so he makes Daniel paint his fence, for example, but he gives him very precise instructions as to how his whole arm is supposed to move while he's painting. He also has Daniel walk, wax his cars. Wax on, wax off, he says. Again, he gives very specific instructions as to how Daniel is to position his body and how he's to move his arms while he's waxing on, waxing off. And Mr. Miyagi has Daniel repeat these types of chores and movements over and over and over again. Even after the chores have already been done, he has to keep repeating it. Well, finally, Daniel gets fed up, and he tells Mr. Miyagi that he feels used and that he came to him to learn karate and not to do a bunch of chores for him. But it was at this point, and probably the best scene of the whole movie, when Mr. Miyagi begins to attack Daniel. Paint the fence, he shouts. And his, as his fist comes flying in Daniel's direction, Daniel has become so habituated to the painting of the fence posture and movement at this point that his body just reacts naturally to the threat. And his body automatically blocks the blow. Wax the car, Miyagi shouts. And again, Daniel is able to protect himself from the strike. It is then that Daniel realizes that his master had tricked him into learning karate. All of this time, he thought he was doing something else, but he discovers in the moment that he really had learned what he had come to learn. Well, my friends, Jesus has Mr. Miyagi'd you <laughs> with this parable. <clears throat> you thought you were just listening to a story about a religious teacher and a sinner going to the temple. Little did you realize that this story is actually about you. The point of Jesus' story isn't that we should be less like the Pharisee and more like the tax collector. The point of Jesus' story is that you are the Pharisee already. So get inside the story. The moment you start to have a gut reaction to the Pharisee's prayer and his whole attitude is the moment that you've become him. You've been Miyagi'd. <laughs> Usually, we like to identify with a tax collector because he turns out to be the good guy in the end, doesn't he? And oh, how we love being the good guy in the story. We're also inclined to gravitate toward a victim mentality, right? Uh, and we start to suspect that the tax collector is probably the victim of a society run by people like the Pharisee, so we identify with him all the more. But the moment you start to say to yourself, that Pharisee is really bigoted and prideful and stupid, <laughs> is the exact moment you've actually become him. Yeah, judging the guy who judges everybody else makes you no different 
than him. And if you then consciously or subconsciously begin to thank God or the universe or whatever, that you are not like people like him, that you are woke, that you get what life is really all about, you have proven that you are the Pharisee, that there is no difference between you and him. There is no duality between his character in the story and who you are in reading the story. Let's bring this a bit closer to home, shall we? Feel the sting of Jesus' wisdom all the more, shall we? You don't think you're like the Pharisee? Let me prove you wrong. God, I thank you that I am not like all of those Trumpers. I thank you that I am not like the religious right, those people who have oppressed so many others in your name. God, I thank you that I am not like those stupid conservatives. I am so glad, so glad that I get it when so many people in this world don't. Or how about trying this one on? God, I thank you that I am not like all of those woke liberal activists. I thank you that I am not like those far-left socialist totalitarians who are destroying our great country. God, I thank you that I am not like all of those people who voted for Sleepy Joe. God, I am so thankful that I get it in a world where so many people do not. You think you're different from the Pharisee? (laughs) You aren't. Let's go deeper. In psychological terms, Jesus is spotlighting the shadow self in this parable. That part of you that you seek to distance yourself from. That part of yourself that you seek to repress because you like it the least. Oftentimes, it is our shadow that we subconsciously project onto others. We villainize others who remind us of the thing within us that we hate the most. Which is why (laughs) the Pharisee is so grating to us. It's not because we're better than him. (laughs) It's because we are him. And we hate being reminded of that fact. Furthermore, the tax collector in this story is more than likely... Just the delusional sense of self that your ego is clinging on to. You want to be like the the tax collector, but you really like the Pharisee. The point of Jesus' parable, you are the Pharisee. Wake up and see that. Because you won't make any spiritual progress until you address that side of yourself that you are trying so desperately to ignore, trying so desperately to repress. You have to incorporate your shadow in this spiritual work, not cram it away somewhere in some dark place deep down inside of you. And Jesus lived his message by example. It's what his trial in the wilderness was all about, coming face to face with his own shadow and befriending it. My friends, here is the profoundly beautiful thing about the Bible. Once you are able to get inside of its narrative, you realize just how much its narrative has participated in yours. Once you are able to incarnate its reality, you quickly realize just how much it has incarnated yours. You thought you were just getting into a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, but then you realize that this story has been inside of you all along. There are many people today who don't like the Bible, saying it's barbaric in parts, and archaic and primordial, right? Yes, it is, (laughs) because the core of our human existence is barbaric and archaic and primordial. Primordial. I think I'm making up a word there. (laughs) Anyways, uh, one of my favorite mystics and writers of all time, Father Bede Griffiths, 
He once argued that we should do away with some of the psalms that we say in corporate worship. Because there's a lot of barbaric psalms that cry out for God to smite their enemies, to commit genocide against entire nations even. I mean, there's some really angry, vengeful psalms in there. And other parts of the Bible as well. Griffith's argument is that modern people no longer think this way, so barbarically, and that these psalms don't depict God in a flattering light either to the modern mind. While I love Father Bede Griffiths, I couldn't disagree with him more on this one. Yes, it is true that there are a lot of psalms that are barbaric, filled with violent, bloody, hateful language, that they are addressing the full scope of our human experience, not just the parts of our experience that we like. In other words, the Psalms don't repress our shadow like we tend to do, but they incorporate the shadow self and then they redirect it into a gut-wrenchingly, brutally honest prayer life. It's not about celebrating this dark aspect of our humanness. It's about turning to it and facing it and giving that part of ourselves over to God because it's a part of us. We can't ignore it. Again, like Jesus' parable, we're not given these more violent and immature psalms so that we would imitate them. We are given these darker psalms so that we would turn and face our own shadow, turn and face our violent, angry, vengeful side instead of repressing it. Just pretending like you are incapable of that kind of violence and those kind of violent feelings that are presented in some of these psalms, it's far from productive. It's actually counterproductive. Of course you are capable of it. Under the right sort of conditions and circumstances, people who were once considered as good people have gone on to do truly horrific things. And again... The moment you say to yourself, well, I'm not like those folks, it only proves how deeply entrenched you are in your own pride, just like the Pharisee. The more we repress our shadow, the closer the flame draws to the powder keg. It's better to turn and face our shadow self, because if we don't, eventually that part of us will come exploding out in traumatizing ways. Again, we don't read the Psalms to discern which parts we should imitate and which parts we shouldn't. We read them because they are a mirror for our souls. These Psalms reveal what is already contained in the conscious and subconscious mind. In the Psalms, we find both the conscious and subconscious at prayer, the self and the shadow self, at prayer. In the Psalms, there is no duality between the prayers and the person praying them. Now, my friends, I know this is a long one. (laughs) Let me conclude by retracing our steps a bit. It is the poet who seeks to get his head into the heavens. The logician seeks to get the heavens into his head, though, and it's his head that breaks. By getting his head into the story, the poet's head remains intact. He discovers non-dual consciousness. But the logician who seeks to cram the story into his head, his head splits in two. He remains within a state of dual consciousness. He can never see the unity that's before him. There's always a duality. And the Bible's story will forever be exterior to his own story. God's story will forever be exterior to his own story. Instead of seeing one harmonious story before him, he sees two. 
and he also fails to incorporate his shadow. It's a division within himself, not just a division of narrative within and narrative without. It's a division within himself. Because rather than embracing his inner Pharisee, he tries to repress him. Circling back to Jesus' parable, we only become the tax collector in the story after we have accepted the fact that we have lived our lives playing the part of the Pharisee. According to Jesus, we will never be justified by pretending not to be the Pharisee, but by accepting the fact that we've been the Pharisee all along and feeling remorse for that. Once we realize this, we come to this state of consciousness, there is no longer a duality between the inner Pharisee and the inner tax collector. We discover that the two men are actually one entity within us, two sides to the same coin. But until we let the scriptures open our minds up to this level of self-awareness, enlightenment, the two men within us will never become one. So my friends, we come to church on Sunday mornings to meditate on the scriptures being read. But not too long into this practice, we start to realize that by meditating on the scriptures being read, we are actually meditating on the deepest aspects of our souls. That the scriptures have probably read us better than we have read them. And then we realize that there is no longer any duality or division between our stories and its story. In hearing the scriptures being read, we are meditating both on those parts of ourselves that are easy to see, and more importantly, those hidden parts of ourselves that we have locked away a long time ago. We are meditating on both self and shadow self and seeking to overcome the duality that we have re- erected between the two. Hey friends, uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all of the emails that you've sent our way, uh, encouraging us in what we're doing and uh, letting us know all the ways in which you're praying for us. We really uh, are grateful um, for for you all and for tuning in week in and week out. I especially am humbled um, by the fact that, well, anybody really listens to me whatsoever. So thank you for tuning in. If you would like to give to support our ministry at St. Paul's, um, you can uh, send us a check uh, at, uh, 212 West Grand Avenue, Beloit, Wisconsin, 53511. Uh, or you can always go online. There's a way to give online too. Um, and every little bit helps us a lot. We are a very small church uh, and the budget is always tight. <laughs> so if, if you feel uh, inclined to give to help support us, um, we would be just genuinely uh, grateful, especially during these times of uh, pandemic and trying to figure out how to, how to do church again, right? So thank you again for always, uh, for all the things you do, for all of your support and for tuning in. God bless. Happy Advent.